The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. Well, buenos dias. <laughs> Scripture reading today will cover two chapters. We're going uh, we're gonna to be reading Luke, starting on chapter 22, verses 63 and you can find it in page 883. We will read all the way till chapter 23, verses um, 25. Once again, it's Luke, starting on chapter 22, verses uh, 63, page 883, till um, chapter 23, um, verses 25. And if you are new here today, and if you don't have a Bible, Please take a Bible with you as I give for you to us. <clears throat> now, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is that, <clears throat> who is that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When they came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said, he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of the God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it, or heard it of selves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I found no guilt in this man, but they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in a splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been an enmity with each other. Pilate did then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, but he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving that has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they, but they all cried out together, Await with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, deciding to release Jesus, but then kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? Sorry. I have found 
I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, it's haunting to read the account of uh, Jesus on trial. And Lord, even as we read it, it's kind of like the whole world is on trial for how they have tried Jesus. Um, we're on trial for how we respond to him. Will you please just uh, give us your Holy Spirit now and help us see what's happening in the text, but also help us see ourselves and help us see Jesus and uh, turn to him as, uh, as you so graciously invite us to do. We pray this in his name. Amen. So we're continuing our look through Jesus' account, or sorry, Luke's account of Jesus' last days. And we saw his betrayal and arrest last week, and this week um, we're looking at his trial. So if you take all the gospel accounts uh, together, you see that Jesus experienced kind of six trial episodes from the middle of the night Thursday to the middle of the day on Friday. It was moving fast. Uh, and so the question for us today as we consider what Luke is telling us is not, what's going to happen to Jesus after the trial? Maybe some of you know. Um, he's going to be crucified. So we, the question is not, what's going to happen? The question for us is more, why was Jesus rejected in this way? Uh, what was in the hearts, what motivated the hearts of those who put Jesus on trial and then condemned him? What was moving them? Why did they do this? And uh, I think it's, it's true that as we, are, as we look at them trying Jesus, we learn about ourselves. And we get confronted by the reality of how we respond to Jesus. Because in a way, Jesus is always on trial, isn't he? He's always on trial. He presents himself, who he is, and the world and every human heart has to go, hmm, is that who you are? Um, what are you worth? What does it mean to follow you? How will I respond to you? So we're going to see four groups and, and how they play into Jesus' trial. What we learn from them. You get the religious leaders in the beginning. That's the major one. Spend the most time there. Then we get Pilate and Herod back to Pilate. We'll see their response to Jesus. And then finally, there's this mysterious character, Barabbas, at the end. What did they have to do with it? What did we learn from them? Why was Jesus condemned to shameful death on a cross? And how do we fit in? How do you fit in? Uh, what's your verdict on Jesus? And what is God's verdict on your verdict? So let's begin. We're going to start with the religious leadership of the Jews. I've got to give you just a little bit of historical background here. Again, if you take all the gospel accounts uh, together, you see six episodes of Jesus' trial. The first three were more religious trials with the Jews. So he's taken to Annas' house. Annas was the kind of pseudo-retired high priest who was still, quite frankly, rather a mob boss in control of everything. They take him to his house in the middle of the night. He ships him off to Caiaphas' house, which is just across the street, evidently. Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law, so it's all in the family here. Both of these are in the middle of the night, false witnesses, etc., but they're, they're trials nonetheless before the priests. Then finally, in the early morning, it's the official trial. That's the one Luke is going to tell you about where Jesus sits in front of what we would call the Sanhedrin. The reason I bring that up to you is because I want you to see how Luke defines those first two trials. If you read John, you get way more, way more detail. Other Gospels can fill things in. But I just want you to see how Luke summarizes those first two trials, because it's not very flattering. Look at verse 63 of chapter 22. Luke's summary of Jesus' first two trials. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were, number one, what? Mocking him as they, number two, 
beat him. So this is a fun game. Blindfold Jesus, crack him with your best right hook, and then say, hey, if you're a prophet, you ought to know who just hit you. And then laugh at him. That'd be cruel for anybody, wouldn't it? Uh, to have this kind of hateful mob around you, you're blindfolded. I don't. Uh, so you're uh, you're helpless, right? You can't see, and then you're just wailed on, and then they make jokes about you. And so we we see the cruelty there. We feel the hatred, uh, but another question to ask is: How does this strike you as a trial? A trial? Does this sound even like a trial ought to sound? Where's the, uh, the accusations from, say, lawyers? Where's the witnesses? Where's the looking into the evidence? Where's the innocent until uh, shown to be guilty? Where's uh, the voting that would need to take place? Where's the, all the structures that would go into bringing justice? Where is it? And that's kind of what Luke is telling you. What's he saying? There weren't any. There weren't any. Uh, Just to let this land, a little more historical background. Ironically, if you needed justice in the ancient world, the Jewish Sanhedrin would be, at least on paper, one of the greatest places you could ever go for justice. One of the greatest places. They were built on principles from the Torah, and they had a strong tradition full of important rules and principles to bring about justice. So even the Sanhedrin itself is made up of 70 leaders who have proved themselves in kind of a village court situation for being men of procedure and justice. And then supposedly they come into this. This is the Supreme Court now of Israel. I want to give you some of the, just to, I'm just scratching the surface here, but some of the principles you'd get from, say, the Mishnah, which is Jewish writings of the time. So here's Here's one principle of the Jewish court. The accused gets someone to stand in his defense. You'd, give it, you'd get a defendant. You like that idea for justice? Someone to defend you. Here's another one. The Sanhedrin, the judging body, they can't accuse, accuse themselves, right? They don't bring the accusation. They respond to accusations witnessed by others and judge whether or not it's true. Here's another one that's interesting for our situation. It was uh, illegal to start a trial at night or even in the afternoon. Why wouldn't you want to start one at night? It's hidden, right? It's secret. That's where injustice lives. Why would you not want to start one in the afternoon? Well, you'd be in a hurry to go, to go home. And uh, we don't want that, that. You won't get justice. We're only doing this in the morning. That was a rule of theirs. Here's another one. You had to have two days between a trial and any execution. So there has to be a a middle day there. And the reasoning was, before we kill anybody, we want to give more space to see if any last witness comes up. Maybe there's any hesitation in those who made the judgments to say, no, we need to... We can't execute this person. You, You can't go from a trial straight to an execution even the next day. And as I give you, just I'm just scratching the surface on these principles and rules the Sanhedrin had. If you know anything about the trials of Jesus, which of these were actually kept as they tried him? Did he get anyone to stand in his defense? No one. Um, the witnesses did they brought, did they even agree? They didn't agree. Uh, the, the body that first began to accuse him was the Sanhedrin itself led by the chief priest. And not only that, when did his trial start? The middle of the night. When was he executed? The next afternoon. They are doing this at light speed. Light speed. And and what you get is one of the most horrid cases of injustice the world has ever seen, where respected religious leaders who represent the highest Standards of justice at the time deny it all. They drop it all. And they each knew exactly what they were doing. It's shocking how understated Luke here is. Where these religious leaders so practiced, knowledgeable, um, founded on traditions that they all would have known together 
set the whole thing on fire in order to get Jesus killed as quickly as possible. And so even just as a curious reader, you have to ask, what motivated them to to act in this kind of overwhelmingly mob violence kind of way? And I think you see the reason in this discussion Luke gives on the trial on Friday morning. It all comes down to this. What motivated them to condemn Jesus in this way at the speed? Look now at chapter 22, verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chiefs and chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. That's the Sanhedrin. And here's the one question. And they said, verse 67, here's the big one. What is it? If you are the Christ, tell us. Unpack Christ, right? You know that's not Jesus' last name. Now that's a title, which means if I had to try to sum it up as simply as I could, God's promised king who will save his people and reign over everything forever. You can read the Old Testament, study that thing deep and wide, and you will see wonderful pictures, prophecies need for the Christ. But the thing is, are, are you him? Are you the man, that one, God's promised king who will rule over everything, save the people, renew the earth, bring justice? Are you that guy? Are you the Christ? It all comes down to this. Jesus gives a three-part answer. Look at what he says, end of 67. First, he says, he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. Now, if you, just, if you just now started reading Luke and you read that, what might you think? Hey, Jesus, that's not fair, right? Like, give him a little bit. Give him a little bit of something. But that is exactly the very point. What has Jesus been giving them and everyone else for three years? Evidence that he's the Christ. His first sermon in a synagogue, basically, a text about the Christ. And then he says, it's fulfilled in me. I'm the Christ. Every miracle, hey, I'm the Christ. Every fulfillment of prophecy, hey, I'm the Christ. Kindness, compassion, power, wisdom like no one's ever seen before, hey, I'm the Christ. If I tell you you won't believe, why does he say that to them? I've been telling you for three years. I don't think at this case, at this point, you're really interested in truth anymore. They're not looking for evidence. Remember, this is supposedly a trial. If someone makes a statement, what do we need to back up that statement? Evidence. You're not even looking for evidence. His second answer, verse 68, if I ask you, you will not answer. Again, if you're just diving into Luke, you might think, hey, that's kind of, it's kind of shadowy. Why aren't you giving him more? Well, if you've been reading Luke just in the, just a day or two earlier, he was in the temple preaching publicly. And they were debating about who he is in the temple. And he asked them questions about this issue. And they would not answer honestly because their answer would expose them as hypocrites. And so he's saying to them, you are not asking in order to look for truth. You are looking for a reason to deny the truth. This is a sham trial. You're not actually looking for what is true or real or important. You've already decided what you want to do with me, and now you're looking for a reason to do it, and this is all you have. Look at the third part of his answer. I love it. I love it. Uh, just imagine, okay, we're going to do this twice, but imagine this. How does Jesus look right now? How would you look up all night, beat to heck by ruffians? How are you going to look up on that? You've been blindfolded. Okay, they bring you to trial. He's in chains. The, the, the lions are after him. And look what he says in verse 69. The deep ironies you get in these stories. Verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So there he is in chains, right? Got swollen face, blood caked up on him. You know what he's referring to? He's referring to Daniel 7 
and the Christ who reigns forever and judges the world at the right hand of God. He's referring to Psalm 110. The, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who brings justice on the nation seated at the right hand of power. And so he says to them, as you judge me unjustly right here, tomorrow I'll be judging you from the throne of God. Maybe not tomorrow, three days, however you want to play that out, okay? You can, feel, you, you, you can source that out later. Very soon, I will be judging you from the throne of God. Do, do do you love how he just dropped? The one being judged judges the judgers because he is the Christ. Look what they say then in verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And what did he say in response? You say that I am. That phrase just means... That's right, you got it. You said it out of your own mouth. Yep, I'm the son of God. I am. Look at their response, verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. What are they now ready to do? Kill him. And what's the only crime they could find after a night of sham trials? What's all they got? He claimed to be the Messiah and the Son of God. He says it. They say, let's kill him. What's missing in this trial? Does anyone have any evidence that he might be the Son of God? They're not looking for evidence. This is enough to kill him. And so we start to learn about what motivates them. This is what I want to throw out at you. I don't even think they killed him for claiming to be the son of God. They're not killing him to be for ultimately for being a heretic. Because Jesus has said, right, I've been giving you evidence. You won't even answer questions. They're not claiming, they're not they're wanting to kill him because he claims to be the son of God. They want to kill him precisely because he is the son of God. He is the son of God. That's why they want to kill him. Jesus refers to this theme. John 8, 42, he says very clearly, if God would your, were your father, what is he saying? If God's your father, how are you going to feel about Jesus? According to Jesus, you love him. And if you don't love him, how come? You don't like God. And there's something here then that incriminates us. Remember, we, wanna, we don't just want to see, it'd be so easy, right, just to see the chief priests and all them and be like, they're so bad. And then we can have little self-righteous parties about how great we are and we're not like them. It's a fun game. It's not really what the text is for. We're all incriminated here. The whole world is incriminated here. I've spent a lot of time on this background, but listen, these, these folks were so structured on their religion. And they actually had some good principles in their religion. Uh, and they, and they, they lived it out like intensely legalistically and then when Jesus comes and he claims to be more than just another good teacher the fire starts and they want to kill him what do we learn from this wouldn't you agree we owe different things to different people you owe different things to different people what do you owe a teacher in your life uh, respect listening what do you owe your mother Come on, moms, right? Uh, love. What do you owe your friend? Camaraderie, loyalty. Try this one on. What do you owe God's Christ who is the Son of God? What do you owe him? Everything. Everything. Who defines what it means to be good? He does. Who defines what life is for? 
He does. Who defines the value of this out of the other thing in relationship to himself? He does. He does. What do you owe him? Everything. And this is why we hate him. It's, it's astonishing to me to look out at the world, whether it's big official religions or just people I chat with. Nearly everyone is happy to say that Jesus is a good teacher or a good person. Have you noticed that? It's almost never do I hear anything hateful or cruel explicitly about Jesus. Religious hearts love to keep him as a good teacher. Because then what can you do? You kind of feel good that you're not like against him, right? I'm not against Jesus. But then you get to keep him over there in his own little room. And you stay in control of your life. You stay in control. And when he comes out of that room and says, I am the Christ, the Son of God. Now now the trial is occurring and you have a choice. You're either going to bow the knee and give him everything or what? You want him dead. You want him out. And all integrity gets thrown out the window in in order to find any reason to reject him. Why was Jesus condemned to crucifixion? Religious hypocrites hated his authority as the son of God. And it still happens in hearts and religions right now today all around the world. Okay, well, they've made their choice back into our story. Now they have work to do. The Jewish authorities cannot legally have Jesus executed. They're under Roman rule, Roman authority. Only the Roman government can have Jesus executed. So now they have to go and convince the Roman authorities to get Jesus killed. More than that, the Jewish crowds, at least some of them, are still positive towards Jesus. Uh, This is the only way they're going to get him killed. And so they do it immediately. Look at 23 verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him. And look at their claims. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Did you notice what happened to the charge? The reason the Jews hate him is because he claims to be the Old Testament fulfillment, right? They wouldn't use the word Old Testament. The biblical fulfillment of God's king. Do you think Pilate, the Roman governor, cares at all about the Jewish philosophies on Christ? Does not care. What's Pilate care about? Taxes and political power. (laughs) And so what is now the accusation against Jesus? More injustice. You can't change the... uh, you can't change the accusation of the crime mid-trial, can you? Uh, so now they're like, okay, we'll put the theology stuff to the side. What do we want to get Jesus, get Jesus for now? Hey, Pilate, this is a political insurrectionist. He's starting to, to, he's starting to he wants to bring a, revol, a political revolution. He's an insurrectionist. Hey, Pilate, he told people not to pay taxes. Hey, Pilate, he says he's another king, and of course the way they're speaking is a king like you are a king, Pilate. And so they're hoping, hey, we'll get Pilate, oh, you're, you're in my way, you're causing riots, and then sure, Pilate kills people for that all the time. That's their attempt. So Pilate begins to look into it. By the way, were either of those accusations true? Did Jesus tell his people not to pay taxes? Read a few chapters before, he told them the opposite of that. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. By the way, did uh, Jesus ever attempt to start anything sort of a political violent riot? Ever. No. When he goes into the temple to overturn something, does he overturn the uh, Roman fortress with the soldiers? Nope. What's he overturn? The temple. He doesn't want your vote. He wants your heart. So Pilate asked him in verse 3, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him with this phrase, It's a little difficult. You have said so. It's a little different than the, than the previous one. And if I'm trying to, un- I'll just give you my paraphrase for what I think it means. It means something like this. Are you the king of the Jews? Yeah, but not like you think. Yes, I am, but not like you think. Again, Pilate's thinking of 
another political governor right here with soldiers. He's thinking of political power, propaganda. He's thinking of wealth. He's thinking of schemes. He's thinking of who has the money. That's not the kind of king Jesus is, right? John 19, 36, this is what Jesus says to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. Will it affect this world? Oh, heck yeah. But it's not of this world. It's not like this world. It's so, so much bigger, so much deeper. He's after far bigger things. So look at, what, look at Pilate's uh, conclusion, verse 4. Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, as far as political insurrectionist goes, right, what does he say? I find no guilt in this man. Innocent. So Pilate should now use his power to do what? Set him free. Who's the Roman governor? Who's in charge of this? Pilate. What should Pilate now do? Set him free. But Pilate has problems. Look at verse 4. Pilate said to who? The chief priests and the who? The crowds. Pilate has a thing with crowds. We all do a little bit. There's an uproar happening here. Look at verse 5. They were urgent. The crowds are swelling. The message is urgent. We want to off this guy. We want him out. So Pilate finds, hopefully, what he thinks is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked, oh, did you say Galilee? Because here's his play. Somebody else is in charge in Galilee, and I'll just send Jesus over there. Maybe Herod can take care of this for me, and I'll get out of this tight, tight squeeze. So we're going to go over to Herod now. Verse 7, when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see what? Signs done by him. What does that mean? I want to see a miracle. I have heard about miracle beyond miracle. I want to see one. Now, if you know anything about Herod, he was a clever, somewhat unstable tyrant. Clever, somewhat unstable tyrant. John the Baptist was beheaded by him. Um, we get a little bit of Herod's reaction to Jesus. In the beginning, he's kind of afraid of him. He thinks he's, again, he's unstable. He's superstitious. He thinks he's John the Baptist when he's guilty. Later, you hear that Herod wants to kill Jesus. But now Herod's just curious. What is he, again, what does he want to see? A miracle. Why does he want to see a miracle? Just unpack it. It's kind of obvious, but unpack it. Why would he think there's a good chance of seeing a miracle if Jesus is in front of him? Jesus has been doing miracles. That should say something, shouldn't it? Finally, as Jesus right in front of him, questions him, pokes, prods him. Look at what's happening in, uh, what are the Jews still doing? Verse 10, the chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. So again, is Herod looking for truth here? About how Jesus fits with God in his story and what, what's Herod looking for? Entertainment, man. Give me a show. I got all my people here. Herod likes that, right? Remember his like stepdaughters dancing for him in front of him? He's a shady dude. But this, this is what he likes. Entertain the crowds. Hey, show me a miracle. Come on. Don't you know, do you see the pressure? Don't you know the power I have? I can get you killed, or you can pony up and show me a miracle. Go ahead. You know, make the, make the clay bird fly. Go ahead. Uh, give, give Joe over there a tail, you know. Do something. Entertain me. Entertain me. So Jesus is getting this. You, again, you imagine the setting. You've got this powerful man, rich, lavishly wealthy, all his kind of mob crowd, laughing, mocking, drinking, uh, and then over here, you've got these, the chief priests and scribes just, I mean, what they're yelling the whole time, kill him. We want him out. Kill him. He's a fraud. He's a fake. Kill him. And then there's Jesus again. How's he looking right now? How's he feeling? His face is swollen. There's blood caked on him. He's chained up. I mean, you just, you, just from the eye source on who has power or not. And Jesus is at the bottom, so hated. And I just... I'm amazed by what he does in verse 9. Herod questions him at length, and what does Jesus do? He made no answer. 
He just sits and takes it. I want to think that this is different from most of the criminals facing execution that these men have seen before. What do you think you would often get from a criminal facing execution? Maybe you get like weeping, begging. I'll tell you anything, just don't crucify me. Maybe you would get uh, railing accusations. Jesus makes no answer, doesn't say a word, so majestic and dignified. Why? Why doesn't he say anything? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One would be, he knows there's no win here, right? Isn't there sometimes a question you shouldn't answer? Like, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? Yes or no, right? Or did you stop beating your wife? Yes or no? Uh, it's not a fair question, right? It's, it's, it incriminates you either way. It's not, it's not looking for reality underneath. Are any of these people looking for truth? Has Jesus been happy to engage with anyone who looks for truth? Of course, every time. But they're, they're not looking for truth. They just want to kill him, and he knows what's coming. Does he try to get out of being crucified? Does he try to escape it? No. Remember Isaiah 53, verse 7. It's a wonderful prophecy that Jesus fulfills. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Look at it with me. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet what? He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. You know, another rule that the Sanhedrin is breaking is that you can't start a trial regarding execution on a feast day. Do you know what today is in this story? It's Passover. What do you do with a lamb on Passover? You slaughter it. Why? It represents something. There's a substitution who's paying the price you deserve to pay for your sins. And Jesus knows something as he sits there and doesn't say a word. What does he know about himself? I'm the lamb. And just like the lamb doesn't cry out, I don't cry out either. What is this a picture of? Remember, remember in the garden, right? He had his moment. Father, Father, please don't make me drink this cup, right? Don't make me drink it. But then he finishes that prayer with, what did he say? Your will be done. And then he gets up and he's, he swallowed it. He's, he's, he's ready. He's going to go. And now he has set his face to what he's doing. Is the beautiful picture of submission to the Father. Right here. Right here. The Father has put him in this position to save sinners. And Jesus is walking down the road with no hesitations, no complainings, no excuses, no looking for ways out. He's, he's walking right into it. And it's so incredible to me to think about what Herod sees and what he doesn't see. Because what's Herod's response to Jesus' humble submission? They put a coat on him that only a king would wear, and they mock him. They make fun of him. See, Herod was afraid of Jesus at first, and now we've got this um, accusation that Jesus is a political insurrectionist. Does Jesus look like much of a political insurrectionist now? He's all beat up, and he won't even say a word. And Herod's going to send him back and say, not guilty of being an insurrectionist. By the way, what should Herod do if Jesus is not guilty? Let him go. But he doesn't. And so instead of letting him go, he mocks him. Now put this together. What kind of a life does Herod respect? What kind of a leader would Herod listen to? Power. Miracles. Strength. Self-vindication, self-centeredness, self-promotion, living for pleasure, living for the now. That's the language Herod speaks. And what is he seeing a picture of? Submission to the Father. And what does he do with it? He mocks it. Hey, do people 
reject Jesus today because they cannot handle the idea of submissive obedience to the Father? Have some of you, maybe even you're even here right now, and you, you know that if you gave your life to Jesus in a certain way, he would call you either to start doing this or to quit doing that. And you look at that call and you say, I could never live like that. I don't want to live like that. And so we remember who Jesus is and what he, what he deserves from us. What does he deserve from us as a Christ? Everything. And then he might call us, oh, he will call us, right, to some sort of submissive obedience to him. And the world and even our hearts, we look at that, that and that kind of obedience, and what do we do? We mock it. No way. Because we know, we know what life is all about, right? Live for now. Live for yourself. Live for what feels right. Live for what vindicates you. Live for what makes you happy. You make your own way. You pave your own road. You be the Christ of your life. And when we see Jesus, actually in his beauty, it looks ugly. Because we can't stomach the idea that a joyful life, a satisfied life, a peaceful life is one of submissive obedience. Another reason Jesus was condemned to death is because Herod mocked his example of humble obedience. You guys, don't ever forget, what do you get if you humble yourself before the Lord? What's Jesus going to get as a result of his humble obedience? Resurrection, right? He's, he told us he's going to sit at the right hand of the Father. You think he's all right right now? Is he cool? Is he good? Okay. What are we going to get if we humble ourselves before God? One example, James 4, 6. Hey, Herod. Hey, world. Hey, my heart. James 4, 6. God opposes the who? Proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7. What should we should do? What should we do, church? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. And here's this great promise. What is the Lord Almighty going to do for you? He will exalt you. He will exalt you. All right, well, Herod finds Jesus too pitiful to be a threat, right? Not guilty of being a political insurrectionist. Back to Pilate. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said to them, you brought me this man as one who's misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 15, neither did Herod. Hey, what's the main point? Hey, Pilate, we're telling you Jesus is a political insurrectionist. You should kill him. Pilate's answer is, well, Herod and I both think not guilty. What should they do? Let him go. Verse 18, they all cried out together. What a horrible sound. What a horrible sound. Do you hear a crowd of people hungry for blood? They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Two things about Barabbas. There was a strange tradition that at Passover, the Roman governor would release a Jewish political insurrectionist, generally speaking, because this was conflict was happening all the time. We'll give you one. It's kind of like a peace offering during Passover. You get to have one. Next thing about Barabbas, what do you know about him? He is actually a political insurrectionist. He's actually murdered people. He's actually caused riots. He actually wants a war. He's a religious terrorist. Do you see the irony? The chief priests are saying to Pilate, kill Jesus. He's a political insurrectionist. Pilate says, he's innocent, let him go. And they say, no, give us the political insurrectionist instead. Wow, they want him dead. What will Pilate do? Verse 23 tells you what he did. Verse 23, their voices prevailed. Pilate said, what evil has he done? And of course, they don't answer that question. They say, crucify him. Why do they pick crucifixion? 
at least one reason is it is so publicly shameful. Take the one who claims to be the king and make him walk bloody through the streets. Take the one who claims to be king and wants to demand our allegiance and hang him naked on the wood. Shame him. Shame him. The text makes it clear Pilate doesn't want to do this. He did not want to do this, but he does. Why? He's got armies. He's got clout. Couldn't he say, to heck with you? Mark 15, Mark tells us a little more detail. Mark 15, 15. So Pilate, what's he want? Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Because if he lets Jesus go, he, he's taking on some risk. What is he risking? Riots. He's already a little bit in trouble with uh, Caesar, probably, history tells us. Career problems. And so Pilate comes to this conclusion. Jesus guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. But is he worth the cost? He's not worth the cost. Tell me that doesn't, that doesn't speak to our hearts. Jesus. Good person? Oh, yeah. The Christ? Is he worth the cost? Is he worth the cost for you? One reason Jesus is condemned to death is because Pilate did not think he was worth the cost. Last person to consider, this guy is very different. He does nearly nothing in the story. His entire resume is purely about what he has done in the past. His name is Barabbas. His resume is dirty, horrible, ugly, criminal. And what does he deserve? Execution. And he's on schedule for crucifixion. That's what he's done. You imagine being Barabbas. He's there in some cell. And you hear the shouts, crucify him, crucify him. And you know what's on the dock for you. And the soldiers come to your room and they grab your chains. And it is your turn to meet the end that you deserve. And they unbuckle your chains and they let you go. And you think, why? Was there some new evidence in my case? Nope. Was there some opinion difference about what I deserve? Nope. You see, so far we've been looking at human reasons that Jesus was rejected and condemned to death. And you're about to see God's reason why Jesus was rejected and condemned to death. It's because guilty sinners need a substitute. Guilty sinners need a substitute. And Barabbas' chains are taken off and put on the wrist of another. You know what Barabbas' name means? Son of the Father. Can you believe that? The irony, again, is so rich. Who did the religious leaders reject? The son of the father for Barabbas. And yet, as you consider this, Jesus taking his place, there's even more depth here. Because as you see yourself in the story, I've had a heart of the religious leader. I want Jesus out of the way. I don't want his control. I've had a Herodian heart. I mock the idea of submission to God. I've had Pilate's heart where Jesus isn't worth the cost and I want to please the crowds. And I am like Barabbas. The resume on me is dark and if I stood before God, I'd go to judgment. And I need a substitute. And this is the core message of the gospel, isn't it? Right here? In this picture? Why was Jesus on a cross? It's not because Romans and religious people are so strong they can kill God. 
Why is he on a cross? He's on the cross to pay for your sins. He's on the cross to take your place. He died for your dirty heart and rotten resume in your place so that if you trust in him, turn to him, put your faith in him, oh, and what does he make you? A son or a child of the father? I am Barabbas in this story. The one for whom Jesus has taken his place. You know, if you really see this, this is what changes your heart. How does that religious heart get melted where you don't want Jesus as your Lord? You see, he's the one who died for you. How does that Herodian heart change where you mock the idea of submission to God? You see, Jesus' submission for you and taking your place. How does that pilot in you die where you say, Jesus is worth the cost? You see his beauty for you in his life, death, and his resurrection. You realize you're a criminal made an heir. Jesus on trial. What's your verdict? I hope our verdict together is beautiful. Beautiful. Because he's the one who's changed us and set us free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so beautiful in how you endured all these things for us and in our place. And we honor you. God, we confess our sins before you. We have not wanted you as our Lord. We've mocked your ways. We've cared about the crowds more than you. Uh, But we thank you that even still in your grace, Jesus Christ took our place. And that in him, as we trust in him, as we look to him, we are forgiven, not just forgiven, adopted, made children of God. Lord, change us to where we love having Jesus as our Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.